last week uh, was our State of the Family address. And um, like I told you last, last week, um, the State of the Family address that, that we had that day was a, a very important one, uh, a very defining one. If you missed last week's sermon, um, you need to get online and you need to listen to it um, if, if you're interested in what Cornerstone is and, and where she's headed and, and what it is that God's making us into. Um, because after a couple of years, um, dating back to the beginning of 2010, through this past State of the Family Address, God has been relaying for us a theological foundation of himself and the posture that he would have us approach him from, um, from trying to w- work hard and build more to, to rest and, and to living out of wholeness, what God calls shalom. And um, now it's come time for us to, on some level, redefine Cornerstone based on the theological approach that God has led us into. Um, it's time for us to begin to make some shifts, some moves, and some changes um, into the, the life of Cornerstone, who we are, and, and, and how we live and do this thing together. Um, I'm just going to run you through a quick review last week of, of, of last week, because last week's is going to come directly into this week. If you're wondering what I'm going to teach about today, I'm going to teach about elders. I'm going to teach about myself. Um, so uh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> Last week, we, we started off by just saying that at the very core of things, that God's perspective is reality and everything else is non-reality. What God says is real is real. And what God says is, is not real or what God even does not define isn't real. God's reality is reality. That being the case, the book of Ephesians stands as God's perspective of his reality of what the church is. Some people call Ephesians a how-to manual to to do church. Wrong answer. That's not what Ephesians is for. Ephesians is is written in present tense verbs, not for what the church is supposed to do, but who the church is, right, and in her identity. It's it's, it's not a you should be doing this. It's the church is this. And so as you look down through this, you know, you can see all of the different things that God sees the church as being. And it's our job to, to submit to and obey his definition of what our reality as a church is. Not try and do something else. Certainly not try and live according to uh, uh, churchy subcultural concepts of what the church is and, and is meant to do. Our text that we focused on was Ephesians three fourteen to 21, which uh, has at its core this concept of being strengthened with power and rooted in love. Rooted in love so that God can love you more and so that you can be fulfilled more, which is the end for which you were made. Mission is not the end for which you were made. God's mission rests on God. The reason that we are called to faith in Christ is so that his spirit can empower us in our inner being, so that Christ can dwell in our hearts and we will be rooted and grounded in love, having strength to comprehend what is unknowable fully, which is the love of Christ, but to know it, that thing which you never can fully know, that you, may f- that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Fulfillment, fullness, filled, full, right? Fulfillment, that's what you're meant to be. Satisfied with Christ. And these four phrases of strengthened with power, rooted and grounded in love, knowing the love of Christ, to be filled with all the fullness of God, is the purpose of the church. You hear what I'm saying? You hear what I just, like, I just, that's a big redefinition. Don't just gloss over it. That's the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church 
is to be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit that we might be rooted and grounded in God's love in order to receive more love, in order to be fulfilled. And by so doing, we become agents of change in the culture around us. But we do not receive God's love in order to become agents of change in the culture around, around us. That makes God the means to an end that he never set out for us because God's mission rests on himself, not on us. Which is a big difference, I think, than the way most of us were taught to think about church. It's a big shift. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that yet. If you look back at this phrase, rooted and grounded in love, this is the key phrase that we're going to be focusing on over the course of the next six months, all the way through Thanksgiving. Um, This rooted and grounded in love concept. And what we use for it is, is the idea of moving our church. When I say that the theology that we've received is going to become true change in who we are, what we are changing from is thinking of ourselves as a church plant in order to become a church that is rooted and grounded in love. Right? A church plant, right? a simple sapling in the ground, we want to become an oak of righteousness, like Isaiah 61 says, with roots that go deep. Right? Like I said, some of us here, I've said this before, and some of you asked very good questions, like, how old is Cornerstone? She's 15. Well, shouldn't we be beyond church plant? You know, I I thought that, you know, that was like the early stages. Church plant is a mindset. It's a way you think about yourself. A rooted and grounded in love church is a way you think about yourself. There's churches that have been around for decades and centuries that are still church plants that have not rooted and grounded themselves in love. One of the biggest lies that the American church believes is that because we've been around for a long time, we probably have some health. Being rooted and grounded in love Knowing the love of Christ, filled with all the fullness of God, in order to be rooted and grounded in love, right? LeBron James is, is, is a church plant. Tim Duncan's rooted, right? He's got roots that go deep. We looked at all these different pictures of Ford and Fiat and uh, uh, bad books versus good books. Yes, I called it bad, bad book. Bad book. <laughs> Not morally bad, it's just, oh, don't get me, st- I can't talk about it. I so value books. Justin Bieber versus the Beatles, Right? neither of which are as rooted as Beethoven, the first great rock star, right? Um, All all of these things built on some basic assumptions that we're going to walk forward with, right? These four basic assumptions are important. If, um, like, if you have fundamental issues with any of these four assumptions, then you need to have a conversation with one of us on staff or one of our elders about what it means for you to be here. Not that we don't want you here. We do want you to be here. But you have to be here the way that God is calling us to be here. First assumption being that you cannot hate the, you cannot love the head and hate the body. There's a lot of people that run around that are Christians who say, uh, I love Jesus, I just hate the church. That's impossible. The church, is she broken? Absolutely. You know, definitely. She's made up of humans. Right? But you, can't, you cannot love the head and hate the body. I said it before, I'll say it again. I think I said it last week. Augustine's quote, the church is a whore, but she's still my mother. We are called to be part of the great redemption of humanity, not people who stand outside of it and judge it from the outside. The church is a means to an end. It is not the end. Church is a means to an end. It is not the end. And the end is not mission. The end is Christ himself, which we can never fully know. Right? According to Ephesians 3. 
The end is Christ himself. The church is not the end. If, if this is your experience of Christ, then there is more of God to know. The church is a means to an end. It, it is not the end. We will at all costs have Christ at our center. We will at all costs have Christ at our center. Everything is on the table as long as Christ is at the center. And fourthly, we will not be driven by consumerism or numbers, the two great deceits that the enemy has interjected and injected into the church over the course of the last 60 or 70 years. Consumeristic mindset and numbers, both of which we'll be dealing with in the future, but it'll be the far future. Don't worry about it. All right. Four basic principles of moving from a church plant to a rooted church. Church plants tend to run on emotion, momentum, and milk of the word. Rooted churches move from emotion to identity and from the milk of basic learning to the building of the body of Christ that is edification. It's what Peter calls milk to meat. If you read 1 Peter 2, you can see this principle lined out in verses 1 to 9. How Peter calls the church that he is writing to to move from where you are in basic things of understanding you're seeing yourself as a church plant to being rooted and grounded in your identities in Christ, which is verse 9. Second principle, church plants are church planter-centric, and appropriately so. This is how Paul planted churches. Rooted churches had diversified, interconnected leadership through a web of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons. This is what Paul intends for every local church that he plants. Again, just let me say, I mean, church plant stage is, is absolutely essential. It's not a bad thing. Right, to be have a church plant and to work according to these ways, that's great. At some point, God moves you. God says it is time to go deep and time to go deeper. Church plants engage outreach together for the purpose of connecting people to the Sunday morning gathering and from there to other kingdom ministry, service, outreach of the church. Thus, on some level, church is about the Sunday morning service. Rooted churches view the Sunday morning service as a time of corporate ministry to the Lord, and real church takes place outside of the Sunday morning gathering. Right? This is a huge shift in mindset. We, we all would agree that the church is an, is an organism, that the church is, is, is not a building, that it's a group of people. But I don't think we often live that in, in the way that we approach our mindset of things. When you come here on Sunday mornings, it is not to get, it is to give. It is to minister to God together. One of the ways that we minister to God together is to receive his word. You know, there's no question about that. One of the ways that we minister to God together is to receive his Holy Spirit. God is blessed by our reception of him and the way that he gives himself to us. But when we come here, it is not out of a spiritual poverty spirit. If we're coming to church going, man, I need whatever spiritual injection I'm going to get today, we are not coming appropriately. We sing a song here that hits this thing on the head. It's called Overflow. You know the song I'm talking about? Um, the whole point of the song is, is, is the, the, the songwriter is saying, pour me out, right? Pour me out that you can pour in. Because when you pour in, what does the psalmist tell us? Our cup does what? It overflows. And we are not people who are in want. We are not people who lack. We are people who are fully satisfied with Christ. The reason we get thirsty is because we stop being fully satisfied with Christ. But coming here won't fix that. You getting with God and doing some serious work will. You are the church out there, 
And the church comes together here in order to minister to the Lord. This is a big shift. Church plants ask people to commit to Sunday mornings and possibly then something else, another kingdom ministry service outreach, as God leads them. Rooted churches ask people to commit to identity, personal spiritual intimacy with Christ, to ministry, appropriate application of spiritual gifts, stewardship, godly usage of his entrusted gifts, financial support of the work of the church, capital C, and community, bearing one another's burdens, growing to maturity together. Sunday morning gatherings are a time of celebration when all of these things, all of these people come together for a corporate ministry to the Lord. This is a biblically commanded time that is not to be forsaken and therefore should be a no-brainer for the Christian. People think that by not showing up on Sunday mornings, they've now made themselves not part of the church. That, that is it's just such a gross misunderstanding of who the church is and what she is meant to be about. This is worship for God when we, as his called people, come together to love on him. And you're called to be part of Cornerstone if you're part of Cornerstone. You know, we, we all have this local concept that we come to together, and it's absolutely appropriate that we commit to these things. This is why God calls the Ephesians Ephesians. He identifies them for who they are. Right? He doesn't just say the regional church of wherever. No, no, we need to be connected to a local body. Local body of Christ is very, very important. It's important for, it's important for accountability. It's important for structure. It's important for some kind of, of, of safe and sanctified spot in our lives where we can know and be known and worship God and ministry together. It's a beautiful part of who God is, but we've got to understand who the church really is meant to be in the midst of all these things. Now, that's a very, very long introduction to um, what technically, hopefully for you, won't be a, a, a very, very long sermon. Um, so t- take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel 34. And um, the question you may be asking yourself in, in the midst of all this is, like, those are really big things. Um, and if you've been in the church for a long time, uh, you know that those four principles are, are very, very large. Like, we're, we're talking about something very, I think, different from, from what we know and from what we've been taught that church is. Um, and I would say to you that, yes, that, that, that is very different from what a lot of us know church to be. And I think that it's very, very essential for us to walk this road together because I think it's what God is, is forming us and calling us to be. This is not a reaction. I, I, I just want to say that right up front. Good leaders don't react. Right? Healthy churches don't react. As a Christian, you're not called to react. You're called to act. You're called to hear God's voice and move forward. I don't know about you, but I, I get very tired of hearing the church whine about culture and then try and do something different. That's a reaction strategy. Oh, the world's bad like this. Let's talk about it like this, and then let's react to it like this. That's not helpful, because the church is called to be in the culture where it is, to hear God's voice in that culture, and then to do that, whatever that is. And whatever that is, is not a reaction on God's part, because God doesn't react. God acts. God initiates. 
And that's what he calls us to do. The only problem is that we can't do it. But we don't need to do it. Why? Because we've got him. But because we miss out on the very first thing that we should be about in our rooted and grounded in love church, which is identity in Christ, it goes right out the window, out the back door, and, and we end up reacting all over the place. We end up programming ourselves into oblivion. We end up working ourselves to the bone. We end up with a bunch of tired people that come together in a place where it's safe, but who, don't, but who are oftentimes so wounded and, 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 and thirsty and needy that we, we end up living in the same cycles and creating the same cycles that we've been in for the rest of our lives. And I, I, I just think that we need to be done with that. We, we need to be finished with that poverty mindset that the enemy has sold us on. Because who we are in Christ is enough. And Jesus' blood is enough. And his resurrection is power beyond power. And we as his people are called to be his body. That's why you can't love the head and hate the body. Because whose body is it? It's his body. Right? It's like telling your wife, I love your face, I just hate the rest of you. You don't do that. You know, that, that's a horrible, horrible thing to say. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. But the problem on a lot of fronts is that we forget that we're his body. And so we, to use scriptural pictures, we, we adulterate ourselves to other lovers. We sleep with other idols. We prostitute ourselves. In Ezekiel 16, it gets so bad that the people of God begin paying other people to sleep with them. It's reverse prostitution. And I don't think that that's a stretch for the history of the church or for where we are. I just think it's important that we see what's going on and who God is calling us to be so that we can act in that as opposed to trying to react to something. So seeing these four principles and seeing the largeness of them, the question is, is okay, well, how do you propose to, to get there, Jay? And, uh, you know, I don't know. N- not really, which I'm not used to saying. You know, I... I know that what God is leading us into is good. But I don't know that I've seen it or experienced it before. So I can't tell you what it looks like. I haven't led a church that's done this before. And so I can't tell you what I did before. I can tell you this, is that we're in it together. And that who God is forming us to be and what he's saying to us as cornerstone is good. And that the road that he's had us walking down with its joys and with its pains has been a road that he has been overseeing and that he has been navigating us down. We got here by following his voice. And that's what we need to keep doing. Is we need to keep walking with him in intimacy, rooted and grounded in love in order to experience deeper love, in order to be fulfilled in Christ. You were created for intimacy.
The problem with that statement is that oftentimes, and, and this is where you can, uh, frustration can set in sometimes, is that saying that to people who are rooted in South Central Pennsylvania is oftentimes like talking to a wall, particularly men. To say you were created for intimacy. You were created for a deep love relationship with Christ. It just, it, 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 it's hard. Like that, that language, that feeling, that, that, um, that, that vulnerability, that weakness, that inability to have secrets, which our land is full of. That, that scares a, a lot of us as southeastern Pennsylvanians. I think it especially scares a lot of southeastern Pennsylvania men. Or it just sounds like somebody's talking to you in a foreign language. Um, because it's just not something that we're used to, and that, 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 that we understand. I get it. Um, but I, I do think that we, this, this is too important to step around that we need to follow God into this concept of being rooted and grounded in his love in order to receive more love, in order to be more fulfilled in him, and then be that everywhere that we are, which is what church should be. And then come together to experience our service of ministry to God's heart that he might be glorified more. And so what we need to ask God for is is his language, his interpretation, his thoughts, his ways. Which is okay, right? Because it's, it's him. And this is actually his flock. And we are actually his people. And we are the ones who are called by his name. But I I do want to um, stop here and just pray that God would enlighten our hearts, right? that he would open our minds and our hearts to his language, to his words, to his ways. So, um, yeah, let, let's pray together. God, I, I fear that we, your church, have lost our way. That we have become very preoccupied with how we feel. With what makes us happy. We've become very focused on ourselves and our structures. On the worship styles that we have and on the colors of our carpeting and the buildings that we have and our budget systems and we see all these things as meeting our needs or being the kind of church that we want to be a part of. And in the midst of all of these statements, there's a lot of us and none of you. God, forgive us Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for our criticisms. Forgive us for finding our confidence in anything else other than you.
Forgive us for our pride, Father. We desire to be who it is that you made us to be. You tell us who you made us to be. But we oftentimes try to be other things than who you made us to be. And we don't want that anymore. We understand, God, that on on a very basic level, this is actually a step of obedience that we're talking about. This is about choosing to believe that what you say is bigger than what we say. That when you say that we are glorious and powerful sons of God, that we are, as opposed to being the, uh, the selfish weaklings that we feel like. This is about us saying that, yes, we are people who are called to deep sonship by the adoption of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the glory of our Father is, is all that we care about as opposed to the the glory of our systems, to the glory of ourselves. God, so much of this has just been stamped into our heads, stamped into our spirits, stamped into our hearts, this wrong way of thinking by the enemy, by our world, by ourselves. God, unveil deceit with your truth. Open our hearts Father, to your grace and to your love. You're not sitting up there with judgment because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Therefore, we are not condemned. We just don't want to miss you and your plan for us and your intimacy with us. God, I pray that in this very moment that you would enlarge in the heart and spirit of every person at Cornerstone from the, uh, the baby in the womb to the oldest person here, enlarge in our heart and spirit to receive your love, to receive your goodness for us. Open us up, God. You know the parts that are locked down and that were locked down and that have been locked down for years from deceit, from wounds, from hurt, from whatever it might be. You know that stuff. Even we ourselves, when it's us, we don't know that. So God, open us up however you need to to receive from you what it means to be your people and to live and to walk in that. God, you hear our prayers. and We say thank you. You are a God who listens. And you are a God who speaks. We love you. We thank you. We worship you. You are worthy, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we were to ask God how we walk to and through some of these basic things, one of, his, one of God's key strategies and ways of working with his people is through leaders. Um, when God puts his people together, be it the nation of Israel or be it the, uh, the, the, the church, Jesus with his disciples, what you see is leadership time and time again. You see leaders in this and leaders in that. He calls out this person here and this person here. And he raises up this person here and topples down this person here. All, all, all of these things God is orchestrating and moving and doing in his people. Um, 
back in uh, January, we restructured our church governance, um, the way that our church chooses to, to chooses to work itself through our elders and deacon structures. That came out of some serious soul searching on the part of us as, as elders to say we want to be more rooted and grounded in the love of God by being and operating more in the way that God calls us to do so. Um, and so today and next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about elders. And then next week, we're going to pray over and anoint and lay hands on our, our elders. And then Matt's going to teach about deacons because it's Matt's primary role here at Cornerstone is to oversee our deacon teams. And Matt's going to teach on deacons, and then we're going to pray and anoint and, 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 and release our deacon teams here at Cornerstone. Um, because leadership is how God molds and shapes things in his kingdom. He calls out leaders, and furthermore, I think that he sees every one of his kids as a leader. And so when the church comes together, it's not as people who are, who are leaders and followers, although there certainly is that implication. It's that we are all growing together to be sons of God who work in and for his kingdom. And all of us are called to lead people to Christ. Right? Which means leadership is an inherent concept, even from the basic concept of taking people to Jesus. So, elders. August 6, 2011. I spoke a lot about biblical concepts of apostles, elders, and deacons. I gave out some nifty handouts. Uh, everything's online. If you missed that, check it out, because I think that'll help clear up some concepts of apostles, elders, and deacons. Um, and the handouts, they are nifty. So uh, check those things out. Elders, in a word, are shepherds. Right? Elders, in a word, are shepherds. Shepherding in the Bible is a very important concept. Take your, did I already tell you to take your Bibles? <laughs> That's great. Uh, Ezekiel 34, did I tell you to turn there? You guys are great. All right. Now, this is not where shepherding is supposed to start. You'll, you'll see what I mean. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep. But the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. In my junior year at uh, Bible college, Dean Carfrey was our pastoral theology teacher. In the very first class, you usually get a syllabus. Right? Your syllabus tells you your, uh, all your stuff and whatnot. And he came in, 
And uh, Dean Carfee was a fiery guy, real, real fiery, and uh, it's the best word for him. And he would, just, he would just make up psalms in the middle of class. Like he would just start singing psalms. He memorized a lot of psalms, and he made up his own melodies. And he's just this crazy, fiery guy. And he came in, and he slammed. He had this big Bible, probably King James, God bless him. And he came in, and we're all sitting there, and you're talking before class and whatnot. He came in, and he slammed his big Bible onto the, uh, the pulpit. Now, that's what he taught off of was a pulpit. And it's pastoral theology. And, uh, and he opened up to Ezekiel 34, and he screamed this text at us. And then he said, so do you still want to be a pastor? <laughs> class dismissed. The first class was five minutes. And the next class, we got our syllabus. <laughs> it was great. As you can tell, I've never forgotten it. So you still want to be a pastor? Class dismissed. Very impressive. Very, very impressive stuff. And that's when Ezekiel 34, I mean, it just, just scared the heck out of me. Like, wow. I, and the thing is, Dean Carfrey's presentation worked. You know, the, the shepherds in this text are priests. Right, the, the shepherds are the priests of, of Israel in this spot. And the priests have gone very, very corrupt. But, I, I could teach on Ezekiel 34, but I'm not going to do that. But through reverse grammar, we can see what the role of a shepherd is to be on some levels. Look at verse 3. No, no, no. Don't look at verse 3. Look at verse 4. This is all the stuff that they're not doing. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So if we reverse all of those things grammatically, we can see what the activity of a shepherd that God does expect would be. Now, it's obvious, God keeps saying over and over to, the, to these shepherds that he, is, that he is judging, you're not feeding the sheep. You're, no, no, no not, not, you're not feeding my sheep. In fact, you're eating them. All right, so that's the big thing. Shepherds clearly, primary job, feed the sheep. And because he's judging them so hard on the way that they are eating the sheep, you protect the sheep. Protect the flock of God. Feed the flock of God. What does that look like? You eat the... No, I did it again. You strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the injured, bring the stray ones back, seek the lost, and you rule them right, with gentleness and humility. Now, I have heard people say, usually critically toward the church, the church should be a hospital for the sick, not a community for the perfect. I agree with that statement, but anytime I hear someone say that, I ask them a key question. Have you ever been to a hospital? Do you know that a hospital is the most pain-filled place in a region? People go to a hospital because they're hurting or they're sick or something's broken. And most generally, even, you know, the happiest place in a hospital is where? Labor and, labor and delivery, right? Right? But ask any mother here if there's any pain in the labor and delivery wing. Delivery wing. You know, it's, it's, in, it's in order to bring something good, in order to get healing. Pain is often walked through, is usually walked through, actually. What a lot of people want church to be as a hospital where they can go and get three square meals a day and not be expected to get better. But as a shepherd, this is not what you can do. 
Another pastoral theology class was Dr. Ryder. And Dr. Ryder said, the primary role of a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Which, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Right? So the role of a shepherd is certainly to work this thing like a hospital situation. But there is no doctor worth his salt who does not expect people to get better if they're going to come to the hospital. And that's what a shepherd does. A lot of folks just want to lay in bed and keep the really bad diseases away, but let me still have cancer. Right? Instead of working really hard to put this person through a very difficult process that will bring them healing and more wholeness. So, shepherds do these things. Shepherds do these things. Oftentimes, sheep do not like it when shepherds do these things to them. But this is the role of a shepherd on many levels. Turn to the book of Micah, chapter 5. In Micah, chapter 5, I think you see the absolute key holistic statement of what pastoring is, of what an elder is meant to do in the congregation of the people of God. Micah 5, verse 1. This is a messianic prophecy. This is about Jesus. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid within us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one is to, who, who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand, and what? And shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Right? The Messiah will stand and shepherd his people, his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will dwell secure. Why? What is the source of their security? What does your text say? What is the source of their security? For he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The greatness of God is the security of his church. The greatness of God is the security of his church. The bigger the worship of God is by the people of God, the more secure the people of God will be. Which is why we cannot come together with this poverty spiritual spirit that God hasn't given us everything that we need. And it's the church's job to give me the things that I miss. You're not missing anything except Jesus. If you feel like you're missing something, you're missing him. And the way to receive from him is actually to praise him, is actually to worship him. Because in his greatness, in his majesty, in his name being lifted up, you will be secure. It is the worship of God that is the security of the people of God. It is not the attendance, it is not the buildings, it is not the budget, it is not the programs. When a church learns to give everything they have in worship of God, that church will be secure. That's a faith-testing thing. And he will be their peace. That is the goal of shepherding. 
my job as a shepherd at Cornerstone, the elders' jobs as shepherds at Cornerstone, is to lead you to peace. And you might be saying, you're not doing a very good job. I don't have any peace. You might be right. Or you might misunderstand peace. What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. What does shalom mean in the Jewish mindset? It means wholeness. That's right. Peace does not mean absence of turmoil. Peace means that you are a more whole person. So to apply this really specifically to something else I just said, let's say that South men from southeastern Pennsylvania have serious issues with Jesus saying, I'm the lover of your soul. You are my bride. I want to be intimate with you above all things. This is what you were made for. And unless you understand this, you don't understand me. Let's say that that, something about our land, the curses on our land, the way we were brought up, the culture that we live here in southeastern Pennsylvania with, just shuts that down in a human. Such so shuts it down in a man. Right, that a man has that part of his heart on some level because of his wounds, because of his upbringing, shut off. Then that means that as a shepherd, it is our role to walk with and to lead you in becoming whole. And if that part of you is shut off, then you're not whole. And we need to seek God's face together about what it means for you to have that part of you opened up to his love. Because his word says it. God has spoken. This is who you are. And so if men in southeastern Pennsylvania can't receive the intimacy of Christ, then they cannot be whole. And our goal as shepherds is to create whole people. Turn to John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they, not want, and they will not listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So what does it mean for elders to be sheep? And what does it mean for elders to be shepherd? And what does it mean for us together to shepherd one another? 
And what does it mean for all of us together to understand that Jesus is the good shepherd who shepherds his flock as one flock? This is what we tend to think of shepherding as. This doesn't remind me of Jesus. I cannot see this person walking into the temple and turning over the tables in anger and purifying his father's house. I can't see this person fighting off lions and tigers and bears on mine. Right? I can't see this person saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I also can't see a child's heart being strengthened by this. I think that this misses who Jesus is. And because it misses who Jesus is as our good shepherd, I think that we have misunderstood what it means to be shepherded by the shepherds that he calls to us in local churches. Shepherding, DJ, you you can bring your team back up. Um, Shepherding the flock of God is a role and is a calling that God extends to his church. And when God built his church, he says, you identify and appoint shepherds who lead as his under-shepherds, who is the good shepherd. But that shepherding concept has gotten misdefined. It's gotten misdefined by our consumeristic mindsets. It's gotten misdefined by our need for numbers. It's gotten misdefined that the church is actually the end in and of itself instead of the means to an end. There's so many levels that shepherding has been misdefined on. And shepherding has to be redefined. It has to be reclaimed from the pages of Scripture, from here, not from what we've been told that it is, but from hearing God's definitions of what shepherding is and receiving from him what it means to be his shepherds. Now, the hard part in all this is that I'm going to teach on this again next week, and I hope to start right here. So I need you to remember what we just looked at together. All right? I, we... Because it's going to flow. I'll review some next week. But just remember that what we're getting into, the foundation that we've laid, is that God knows who the shepherds are. He's laid out for them what shepherding is. It's leading his sheep into wholeness. He's also put down a foundation that he is the ultimate shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And this is his flock. What we're moving into next week is further into the New Testament about what it means for people who are called to shepherd, to shepherd the way that Jesus tells us to. Because he lays it out for us in some pretty concrete and interesting ways that I think that we've lost in our church cultures. But that if we can regain and let God redefine our minds, we can receive more deeply what it means for us to be his flock. Does that make sense? Okay, that's where we're going. Let me just say again, I need you to remember what we talked about today, which is okay, 
uh, because, you know, suppose people remember like 15% of sermons or something like that. That's all right. Just remember that I said to remember this, and then you'll remember more. Right? Like, that just makes sense. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can be together. God, I do pray that we could bring these thoughts back next week as we head more deeply into your text, into Acts, and into Ephesians, and into 1 Peter. Um, you just keep this stuff in our head. Most of all, God, though, submit our hearts to your direction and to your definitions, rooting us in your word as opposed to our traditions and assumptions and understandings, giving us a deeper concept of what it means to be your people the way that you called us to be your people. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.